Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Nevluma, illuminating the pursuit of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. On today's show, I am joined, and myself and my new co-host, Mark Baker, are joined by Jacqueline Yallop. Jacqueline is the author of three novels and four works of creative nonfiction. She is currently working on a collection of short stories. She lives in West Wales, where she teaches creative writing at, I'm going to let you say the name, Aber, how is that pronounced? Aberystwyth. Aberystwyth. Aberystwyth University. There are more... Yeah. <laughs> she is an award-winning author of fiction and creative nonfiction, described as a writer of rare, fine judgment and delicacy. Her latest book, Into the Dark, is out in this month, November 2023. It looks at darkness in all its forms, in science, literature, art, philosophy, and history. Her novel, Obedience, was nominated for the Man Booker Prize. Big Pig, Little Pig, a memoir, was Radio 4 Book of the Week. Her work has been translated into several languages. She has no social media, but there is a web page that references her work, which will be posted to the Restoring Darkness podcast website. So go to restoringdarkness.com. While you're there and while you're listening, I want you to think about a new entity created by 70 lighting distributors, over 70 lighting distributors and 25 lighting manufacturers. It's called the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. And we have a new mandate, and that mandate is to mediate and resolve, help resolve light trespass disputes, along with the other work of the foundation, which is creating educational programs and actively advocating for the lighting industry to adopt the principles of darkness restoration and night preservation. Because who's going to do the work, folks? If we're going to fix this problem, the lighting industry is going to fix it. That's right. There is no other industry that's going to come along and fix it. If you want to help out, you go to restoringdarkness.com. You click the donate link if you want to donate money. But we could also use some donation of time. We need to fix that website. We need to update that website. So if you're out there and you want to help us out in some way, go to restoringdarkness.com and, and fill out the connection form or give us some cash, become a monthly donor or something. But we're going to be doing some good work. One more announcement before we move to Jacqueline. Mark Baker, say hello to the Restoring Darkness podcast listeners. Yeah, hi, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. Uh, you got to turn down Mark's volume a touch there, Scott, before we move forward. Mark Baker is the, I think, the executive director of the Soft Lights Foundation. I think that's his exact title. And the Soft Lights Foundation is adjacent to the Lighting and Darkness Foundation and um, that it explores the problems health effects and all the problems caused by irresponsible outdoor lighting at night. And so Mark and I have found a lot of common ground to the point where I wanted him to come on the podcast and be another voice in this movement. That's a long intro. Usually we go two minutes. I went three today, but there was a lot of news with Mark joining the show and all the stuff happening at the foundation. Jacqueline, happy to have you here today. Delighted to be here. Thank you for asking. Thank you for tracking me down, actually. I was very impressed. Well, I read an article online, uh, one of our producers here, Scott Walker, it's he follows the news very closely on this, and he sent me an article from the newspaper talking about your new book. Why don't we just start off from the beginning? Tell me how darkness has different forms. What are the different forms of darkness? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? So um, one of the things that I'm interested in looking at in the book is how we think about dark physical thing so obviously you know we go out at night and it's dark and what that experience 
is and why it might be special and meaningful, but also darkness as perhaps a psychological thing whereby, you know, it, it's something about our perception of the world and that's often reflected in language and we talk about you know dark moods for example um so you know how over time over history the idea of darkness has become embedded in our cultures and why it's become so significant particularly perhaps in contrast to ideas of light but not always um so there's that as well and then alongside that the whole i suppose it opens up all kinds of ideas around philosophy religion race um which is about the idea of darkness perhaps as a metaphor or, or um something that we reach for when we're trying to explain difficult ideas difficult concepts um death for example you know, we, we the, the connections between darkness and death are really well established and, and have been repeated over centuries. So when we're trying to talk about something difficult, like dying or like what might happen after we're dead, that quite often there are references to, to darkness or ideas around darkness. Think about hymns, for example. You know, most Christian hymns reference darkness and light in some way, um, particularly in death, things like Abide With Me, which is perhaps one of the best known Christian hymns around death and dying. What was the name of that hymn? You just blipped, your internet blipped a little bit there. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Abide With Me, um, okay, which yes. certainly... Um, yeah, it's a popular funeral hymn in the UK. I don't know um, whether it translates uh, across across the world, but, um, you know, it is what a lot of people here would choose as as the hymn to go out on. So the these metaphors, um, in, in my mind, have, in the age of um, affordable light pollution um, with LEDs, um, I think these metaphors are should be slowly losing their meaning because it seems like we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. While we're afraid of darkness and, and while there there's um, an element of night that invokes a sense of going home, that's because we're a dire, um, we're not a nocturnal species, you know? And so the, the fear is natural. We want to go back to our homes, but we're out at night a lot. We have all this electric light, but I think we're throwing out the beautiful things about darkness, the seduction, the sublimity, the spirituality, and all these other things that go along with night and, and darkness. How do we sort out these metaphorical problems we have? It's interesting, isn't it, that actually the metaphors, I would say, haven't lost their power. So yes, you know, I agree mm -hmm. with you. There's a lot of light out there, but we still use those metaphors of darkness, don't we? We still fall back on them um, to try and explain what it is that's going on in the world, um, which I think is, is quite interesting that perhaps the way that we use language, the way we think about darkness isn't necessarily connected to our day-to-day -day experience of darkness, which is, as you say, about going out in street lights or putting the lights on at home or having a floodlight in your garden or whatever it is. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I started to write the book was because I walk quite a lot in the dark. So the book is structured around my own walking in the dark. And I'm interested in the difference you experience depending on the moon cycle, for example, or depending on whether it's 
cloudy or the stars are out. I mean, you've got a beautiful backdrop to your um, there with starry sky. And um, I was interested in how that, for me, special experience, sensory experience of being out in the dark in different conditions at different times of year in different weather in different countries how that um why why that was important to me and how it was being lost and how it exists as a kind of habitat that is being lost so we think about don't we um the problem with with ocean pollution for example with plastics or um pollution of of land with various horrible things. Uh, we think about loss of habitat, perhaps, you know, loss of ocean habitat, loss of grassland habitat, whatever it might be. We don't, I think, necessarily think about darkness as a habitat hmm. for both us and plants and animals um, and how important it is on that basis. And I think that distinction is, is, is lost. So people just think of it as something to get rid of, to escape from, to turn a light on, to rather than something that is in, in itself unique and special and um, important to all kinds of things, um, both for us and, and for other creatures in terms of our physical and mental well-being. And I think that is, is lost or has become more lost um, as time has gone by. I think one of the things that medieval people, for example, would have been very aware of was... Um, the power of night, of being out at night. And they, they quite possibly chose not to be because it was quite dangerous and, and often not allowed um, through a series of curfews and so on. But um, nonetheless, they would have been aware of the, the sort of fundamental power of what it is to be out in the dark. And I think we've lost that, actually. I think um, people don't often think about it as a powerful habitat. And the, if you, I'm in the hazardous waste business as well as the lighting industry. And one of the um, principles of contamination is how long it takes for the contamination to cause problems. Okay. So for example, if you dump a whole bunch of toxic chemicals into a, a dump, um, how long does it take for that to leach into the lake? That can take decades. Actually, groundwater sometimes moves as slow as three feet a year, four feet a year. It moves very slowly as it moves underground and the chemicals become part. Light pollution is the same thing. We've slowly increased and increased our light levels in our cities and in different areas. And then we had a technological uh, revolution which made light pollution extremely affordable. And um, I'm Mark's going to be chomping at the bit here. You're next, Mark, right after this question. You can come in and, and, and um, ask Jacqueline a few things. Um, but as this has gone on, it's been such a slow process that most people haven't even noticed that it's happened, which is what, one of the reasons why I say there's so many Canadians in this movement, because Canada is largely a dark sky preserve. Most of it's unoccupied. Yeah. And so we often have a chance to experience this nature, whereas most people in the world, they, they will never see... Um, true darkness yeah. of city dwellers. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. And again, I'm very lucky in West Wales. I I don't that there it is. Um, there are a series of dark sky reserves in West Wales. I'm not sure that we're quite as dark as as um, the wilderness in in Canada. But you know, there's the opportunity to see um, a reasonably unspoiled sky. But I think I'm right in saying that um, for 80 percent of the world's population, um, something like the Milky Way is is 
impossible to see and I think that's 99% of the population of, of the United States for example and certainly in, in UK cities um, even on a beautifully clear night the stars are, are more or less uh, not there and one of the again one of the prompts for writing the book was just because I, I've been lucky enough to spend time in rural Europe um, where there's a very very dark sky in the, in the place that I, I've I was living for a while and I was on a nightly basis uh, taken aback by what it was possible to sort of see hmm. and experience and hmm. the fantastic display you would get for various, you know, the Perseids or whatever it might be with, with shooting stars, but not just the kind of pure spectacle of that kind of thing, just the everyday glory of looking at starry sky. Hmm. Mark. Hi, Jacqueline. So, yeah. Um, Hi, so this is really fascinating. Hi, this is really fascinating for me uh, as an advocate for protecting what I call the natural night resource. Um, and so it's interesting to hear you say the habitat because I haven't heard that phrase before. And it's mm -hmm. something I'm going to start thinking about habitat. It's absolutely right. Um, but also this this natural night is a is a resource that needs to be protected, just like water as a resource, air as a resource. Um, I was looking at your uh, article in The Guardian and you mentioned uh, this fear of the dark is actually biologically uh, innate, starting at age two and increasing to age five. And no matter what culture you said, uh, it's it's built in. So uh, can you talk about this fear? Because in our advocacy work, we see cities wanting to put in lights for safety to, to sort of, you know, uh, guard against this, this fear that they have. So we're fighting against something that's innate. Um, do you feel this fear when you walk out in the woods? Do you still have it? And what can we what can we tell cities about this innate fear, and what can they do about it? Okay, that's a big question. Let me see if I can uh, unpick it. So, first of all, uh, in my own experience, um, no, I've I've never been afraid of the dark. I I think I've always loved. I mean, possibly when I was very very young, but not not in my conscious memory. I think I've always loved the dark. I've and. One of the things that interested me about writing the book was that when I would talk to people about it, they, they, lots of people would recoil, oh no, you know, I can't, I'm so frightened. And, and the editor who was working on the book with me said, you know, I've never thought about the dark like this. I keep the lights on in the house, you know, on low all night. I, I can't, you know, um, for my children, for myself. And that, that fear was new to me, really. So it was quite interesting. Um, what I think is fascinating about that fear that we have as children is that actually it's really important so for the young child between as you say the ages of sort of two and five it's important to learn or, or it's important to experience a fear of the dark because it's a way of learning about what the world is and it's a way of understanding what it is to be human um, in the world what might be out there and how you react to that, you know, how you keep yourself safe. So obviously lots of these fears go back a long time before, you know, we are now, um, but they're still about, you know, shaping our position in the world and understanding sort of where we sit. And it's interesting that, that those fears continue to 
to be evident in children, even though, as we've said, you know, most of us don't experience the dark very much on a daily or nightly basis. Um, so that's kind of some of the some of the bits of, of an answer in terms of cities and cityscapes and light pollution. And um, I think um, one of the problems that I, I see, um, and obviously, you know, I'm not very, I have no, actually, that's not true. I was once a, situated in a in a county council planning department, um, but I have very little experience of planning and and you know, building architecture, for example. But um, I think for a long time, lighting something was a building, for example, was seen as a status symbol, wasn't it? It was seen as a way of um, announcing power, announcing, you know, whatever it might be, um, the prestige of, of the city or whatever, you know, what, whatever it might happen to be. Um, and I mean, actually, in the book, I, I, I spend quite a long time talking about the contrasts between light and dark and how historically the use of light has been about um, imposing power so you know the church and the state um over a long time have used light as a way of um making their position stronger and showing their wealth and their difference from kind of ordinary people who had to live in the darkness so and i think that has continued so um the the nature of the the, the contemporary city as a sort of fantastic lighted beacon is something that um is very hard to overcome, and if you think about, you know, example, extreme examples like Las Vegas, for for example, um, or some of the sort of big, uh, extremely highly lit cities in China or, or the Far East, um, or the Middle East, in fact, as well. Uh, or North North Korea and South Korea. Very... North Korea and South Korea are probably okay. the best example of of, of light pollution okay. as a status symbol. Yeah. Okay, so that, that I, I have never been to either, so that's going to go down on my list. But yeah, exactly that, you know, the, the, the use of light um, to, to signal all kinds, of, all kinds of things beyond the fact that you can see your way to the door to put your key in. Um, so I think you probably, have, you probably have a task on your hands convincing uh, cities to, to turn their lights off. But I know more people, don't they? Um, so um, in Europe, certainly, I know that... Um, a lot of European countries, France, Spain, uh, Italy, um, have either completely done away with or very much reduced the lighting on municipal buildings and in, you know, ch lighting churches at, at night or lighting facades, you know, so um, that's... It's certainly that in villages and towns when you go in now in Europe, there's a, there'll be a sign at the entrance with a little um, kind of night sky uh, to show that, you know, lighting will be turned off uh, when darkness comes down and, and that at least is something um and yeah i mean i talk in the book as well it, about sorry go on <clears throat> no well, uh, well you brought up some fascinating things i was also thinking of north korea because when you look at the light pollution maps or you look at the satellite views you see the world uh the I don't, the modern world lit up at nighttime and then you see north korea and it's it's completely dark um, and I sometimes think, wow, that would be so great to live there. Although there's this, 
other political stuff going on that, you know, I, I'm not sure that I would want to live there. Um, but this this power thing is absolutely right. So this uplighting that people do on the cities is to show who they are and who we are in this sphere in Las Vegas that cost a billion dollars, which does all kinds of things with LEDs. Um, and so convincing cities to sort of dial down the, the show of power is really difficult. It's, they say maybe it's for safety. They say maybe we have to have that. And the public seems to want that, but they don't realize that the importance of this habitat, the darkness for our health, et cetera. So it's really hard to convince uh, sort of the public that actually the wiser thing to do would be to actually dial down the light to protect our habitat, to keep it dark. And but but then there's this sort of fear. I can tell you personally that even as an adult, I can still walk out and as much as I want the darkness, I can feel <laughs> something going at me. Okay. There yeah. might be something right yeah. right out there. And it's it's I, I fight it. Uh, and I know that the night is, is natural and something beneficial, but it's still how do we just we can't overlight. And I think it's quite interesting that some of the studies that I came across looking at crime at night showed that actually um, it was less at night than it was in daylight hours. So the perception, as you say, the public perception is that we're less safe at night, whereas actually um, we're not. Actually, you know, most crime is, is committed both on the person and on property during daylight hours. So I think that it, it, it is a question of getting the message out there and 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 education in, in some um, part and probably as as you're trying to do just helping people appreciate what it how fantastic it can be to have a little bit more darkness if not absolute darkness the the do, connection do have... oh sorry go ahead mark oh i was just trying to expand on the uh, crime thing because that's really also important because the, the cities will uh sell the light as a way to combat crime, to make their cities safer. We see it all the time uh, that they're putting in LED streetlights to make the cities safer. Do you have a uh, recollection of any of the articles that you've re read that would that sort of demonstrate that that's not true? You referred to one just a minute ago. Yeah, the, the, there is research out there, um, more, than, more than one article, you know, plenty of articles that suggest that actually um, while that is usually the argument for for new lighting it it doesn't stand up uh, when you look at crime figures and when crimes were committed um and where where we live now actually um they have those lights that kind of dim uh, when no one's walking past and there's no mm. traffic and then sure. when someone comes past to the motion sensor and they they light up again well at least you know at least that's something at least there is some concession to darkness i suppose the electric light is neither the cause nor the solution of crime um and so the the axiomatic presupposition i'm not supposed to say that word anymore i know i've said it too much the producer's looking at me but it's a failed one okay it's a straw man argument so when you know when people say oh insurance companies lawyers legal they just assume that more light will reduce graffiti or reduce crime. And there's no evidence for this. Um, they, and they're not asked to produce evidence for this. They're just simply, it's simply assumed 
that if you light the side of this building, people will cease to put graffiti on it. That's not true. There's no proof of that. Um, and so I had a, I just walked away from a deal the other day, Mark, where a customer called in. He side of his building was graffitied, and he said, I want to put up three massive lights here. And I said, that's not going to stop any graffiti. I said, I'll put the lights up for you, no problem. But I said, that there's no evidence that that reduces graffiti. And so, we, you know, we're, we're operating in a, an environment where there are many assumptions. Is that better, Scott? There are many assumptions that people start off with that have no evidence to back them up and everybody believes them. And one of those is more light equals more safety, Jacqueline. I think that's right. And actually, one of the things that I'm interested in, so I, I'm really a kind of cultural historian and, and obviously a writer. So I'm interested in, in art and literature and, and that kind of thing. And um, when something bad is about to happen in a film, um, the lights go down, don't they? You know, it tends to happen at night. The, the kind of concept of people having to survive the night in some kind of film, particularly in, in crime or horror films, and again in, in books, you know, is, is embedded in our cultures. The idea that um, if you can get through that night, and um, as soon as the sun rises, um, you're, something is going to you know, it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. Um, now, obviously, there's kind of vampire stories where that's obvious, but but even you know other stories. And one of the examples I look at in uh, the book, for example, is um, To Kill a Mockingbird, which we don't think of as you know in any way a kind of horror story or a crime story, but when bad things are about to happen to um, the children in that. Um, we're told over and over again about, you know, how dark it's become, how dark it is, you know, how they can't see. And I think that repetition the whole time in our cultural lives around darkness being connected with bad things happening, with crime, with accidents, um, is bound to have a knock-on effect in our psyches. You know, we, we see it um, everywhere we look. So it, it's very hard then to stand back and say, hang on, is this actually true? Before I throw it back over to Mark, I want to ask you um, one thing. I think the fear of the dark is actually genetic. I don't think it's taught. I think the base fear of the dark is genetic. And I talked to a, a, a bird expert and he explained to me that the ability of birds to navigate by the stars is genetic. They're born with that ability. The turtles, they're born with the ability to look for the moon and go towards the moon in the water. And so my, a lot of this we don't control. Is it? Are we smart enough to admit that we're a species that has limitations and problems created by our own innate fears and things that we're born with? Are we ready for that, Jacqueline? Some of us might be. <laughs> I'm not going to generalize. As, I don't think we think about wise. ourselves as a species. I don't think we think about ourselves as a, as a species. We think about ourselves as a, as above the species of the world. But we're diurnal. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to be awake during the day and sleeping at various times of the night. And then when we change these environments, we change it at our peril. Mark, I'll throw it over to you. Yeah, Michael, that's a super interesting observation because we, I think as a society, we, uh, at least in the U.S., we have this idea that we can do anything, go anywhere, anytime, uh, as fast as we want, uh, and there's really no limits. So Elon Musk wants to put us on Mars. Uh, it's a great fantasy, but you know what? There's a lot of radiation out there. There's a lack of oxygen. 
uh, it's there's a lot of issues with going and living and populating Mars. Uh, and maybe just humans are just not really evolutionarily biologically compatible with you know, Mars. So, uh, you know, this this idea of light pollution uh, and. Oh, I'm not sh not sure. So, you know, if we light it, 20, uh, are we headed towards a, a, a world where it's just lit 24 seven and we'll just have to adapt? Will humans need to just uh, evolutionarily adapt to a 24 seven lit world? <clears throat> well, I would say before we go to Jacqueline, I'd say the answer to that question okay. right now is yes, we are headed towards a world that's massively polluted with electric light. It goes up at 10% a year and it's super affordable now with LEDs because there's not that much electricity to use, Jacqueline. In your book, do you propose any solutions? Do you, pro do you have any idea or is it, is it more of a somber reflection? It's, I don't propose solutions. It, it's very much a kind of personal exploration, really, of mm. what darkness might mean. Um, I'm interested in, in the various kind of phases of darkness. So I spend quite a lot of time, for example, looking at dusk. So mm. the, that transition phase between day and night and actually the dawn as well. But I, I look particularly at dusk and why that's important to us. So you were talking about us as species, as animals, and that period of dusk is particularly important for us on a physical level in terms of the way in which our hormones work and the way in which our brains work and I think in some ways while I absolutely accept what you were saying about a sort of 24-7 culture I think it's those transition phases of dusk and dawn that are often most lost out on hmm. so um, I, I pose questions in the book for example about you know how many of us can actually say well you know the sun has set now because it's not the kind of thing we notice anymore because mm. it gets a bit dark so we turn a light on but actually it's it's those um middling uh, phases of darkness which can be just as important as what we think of as kind of proper darkness so the middle of the night um and again sort of thinking culturally those have been over time very important um transition phases for poets and artists for example um and i i really enjoy i really enjoy a good dusk i think we all really enjoy a good dusk don't we um and i live on a west coast so i am quite often aware of the sun setting into the sea mm. which is fantastic but i think those kind of moments are increasingly lost we're increasingly unaware of things like birds roosting um, the way um, birds sing um, during dusk, the um, changes to colour that occur in dusk, you know, the way that sort of blue becomes more prominent. So all these things that that are very subtle shifts, I think we it, it can become very difficult to to be aware of those now. I think there's um, a physiological damage for not being... Like, I, I don't believe that these things are non-consequential i think that there is physiological damage. no, no ab ab absolutely yeah yeah the, 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 i think that's very true and my understanding is that research on that is at quite an early stage so there is significant research out there already to show how um 
how important dusk and the dark is to things like our circadian rhythms. So the way in which mm. we um, we interact with the day and night, and and how uh, important that is to um, hormone production, and how the things like the disruption of hormones or the disruption of circadian rhythms have effects um, on um, our tendency to um, have conditions like diabetes or, or cancer or um, mental health problems like depression, for example. So there are there are already clear links being made between the disruption of night and darkness and the destruction of dusk and our bodies. Um, and I think because the research is at a reasonably early sort of stage in the life cycle of research that probably more evidence will appear along those lines um, as time goes on. So there's a couple um, I'm gonna um, Mark's gonna throw get really upset here in a second but but I'm gonna tell you. So the lighting industry believes um, or as there's a lot of people in the lighting industry believe that we can actually create positive health effects using LED lights. And we can mimic the sun. And in my journey, over 500 podcasts with lighting experts, scientists, a lot of the top people all over the world, what I found is that we, we can only do harm with electric light. And that we have to focus on redu red harm reduction with electric light. And the second point that that I've discovered is, and what you're talking about with the dusk is this idea of cueing, cueing people to do things. And so what they've discovered is that lighting is a very powerful way to tell people what to do without saying anything. So um, Andrea Wilkerson, um, uh, a prominent uh, researcher in the field for Pacific Northwest National Laboratories, discovered that you can get the visitors in hospital rooms to leave by warming and dimming the lights. <coughs> You can get um, mothers and babies to wake up without uh, any strain or stress by just slowly turning the lights on and warming at a very warm temperature and slowly increasing the color temperature. That anecdotally makes sense to anybody. The sun is rising and the sun is setting. You know, people look at their, their watches when the sun starts to set. What time? Oh, maybe it's time to go. It's getting dark in here. And so you're talking about this queuing. There, I, I, would, I, would, I would assume that there's a physiological element to this queuing, which tells us it's time for you to go to sleep. It's time for you to go back home and rest now. And the disruption of this cascades into all manner of different kinds of problems, Jacqueline. Um, so, you know, I, I think your, your, your intuition is pointing to something um, that is, uh, needs to be researched more. Let's put it that way, Jacqueline. Yeah, and I, I would agree. And one of the personal impulses behind the book was my dad's experience of dementia. And <laughs> I was very interested in how he became very sensitive to, to light and dark and to darkness in particular and dusk and of course um, most people who have lived with someone with dementia will have come across what's known as sundowning which is that period um, usually around dusk when the person with dementia often um, becomes very agitated or anxious or angry or tries to leave the house um, and I think that's exactly what you were saying about queuing being instinctive there's 
for people with serious dementia who are not looking at the dark in any kind of conscious way, there's still an instinctive response to the fact that darkness is approaching and their body is changing in response to that. And that comes through in, in the, this case um, as something quite urgent. You know, they, they realise that something needs to be done quite often. They just don't know what that is because of, of the, the illness. Um, and that's a very, very common um, condition within dementia, I think. Hmm. Mark, do you, we're coming up on time here, four minutes left. Do you have any final questions or comments for Jacqueline? Oh, uh, well, what a great show. Um, I, the queuing thing, that's the first time I've heard that phrase. I just, uh, when these LED streetlights started to come out, uh, it, for me, it wrecked that sunset. So mm. I too is really tied to that sunset. It was the best time of day for me personally. So I looked forward to it. And when the LED streetlights started coming out, these little white lights started to appear and it was wrecking my scene. It was really mentally disturbing for me. Um, so, you know, I, I, I hope that we can do something about, you know, this queuing thing and to say, hey, it's time to go to sleep. It's actually, uh, that's, the, you know, <laughs> it's not time to, to just keep going. Um, so uh, that's all I have to say. Hmm. Jacqueline, uh, it's been wonderful to have you. Your new book is coming out. Is it out yet? It says coming out in November. Has it hit the it's shelves? It's out. Here we are. There it is there. Yep. Okay. <laughs> is it available in North America? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Mm, um, you okay. would have to go online and have a search around. Let's hope so. Okay. Um, and so, Scott, can you note to look it up on Amazon and all the Barnes and Noble and all that and post those links to the Restoring Darkness podcast website? Okay. And we thank Jacqueline Yallop for being a guest today on the show. And I want to remind you just before we go of the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, new 501c3 created by the lighting industry. That's right. Lighting industry professionals are getting together and saying we have to do something about this issue of light pollution. There's too much of it out there. And... You know, maybe Mark Beaker doesn't agree with me, but we think it's a solvable environmental issue or at least a mitigatable environmental issue that we can work towards as an industry. It's time to admit it. If we don't do it, lighting industry, it's going to be done to us. So why don't we just take the bull by the horns and we can um, all get rich selling light fixtures that restore darkness and preserve night. If you want to help out, we need help. We need help with our website. We need help with our social media. There's lots of different ways to give. The, another way is to donate. So if you go to restoringdarkness.com, click the donate link, you can become a monthly donor. We don't have one yet, and we're going to come up with a prize for the first monthly donor. Remind me for the next show, Scott. First money don't, monthly donor is going to get a, a prize. So go to restoringdarkness.com. And of course, uh, we're going to find Jacqueline's book, and we're going to put it on the Restoring Darkness podcast website. Thank you for listening. Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma, illuminating the pursuit of darkness.